Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Weekly Roundup. I'm your host, Aparna Krishnan. Every week, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug cell and gene therapy world and what they mean to you. As 2018 draws to a close, the P4A team decided to take a look back at the events of the year. The team had made a series of predictions on the key trends to watch out for in the rare disease space in February. In this last episode of the weekly roundup for 2018, our analysts take stock and update you on their predictions. We start with Sophie Schmidt's prediction on mergers and acquisitions in rare diseases. So if I cast my mind back to 2018 at the start, I had predicted many mergers and acquisitions throughout the year. And if I look back at the year, certainly that that came true. I believe that there are three different types of mergers and acquisitions that we've seen. And I'd like to just briefly talk about those today in the context of orphan drugs and cell and gene therapy. So the first category is is one that we would typically expect. It's the big acquisitions. I'll talk about that in a moment. The second one is the small companies being acquired by the larger. And again, we would expect to see that. But the third category is something that we, and certainly I didn't anticipate to see throughout the year, and that is parts of a portfolio being acquired by a small company. And we'll come on and explore that in some detail in a second. So let's start with the the first type of acquisition I was talking about, the big acquisitions, the big meaty ones. If we look back at March 2018, that's when Takeda had first announced its acquisition of Shire. It has taken a long time to get that through. Um, Certainly they've had many kind of regulation issues, antitrust issues that have had to be resolved. And in fact, it was only last week on the 5th of December that it was managed to be approved by both sets of shareholders. So we'll see that transitioning now in 2019. The second category, again, one we expect to see is the small companies being acquired by the big ones. And in fact, let me let me take you all the way back to January 2018, where we saw Sanofi having two major acquisitions. The first was the acquisition of Biveritif, which gave them a big rare blood disorder portfolio. And the second was Ablinx as well, more um, blood anemic disorder portfolio. So Sanofi has really done a a great job there in terms of, of bolstering its portfolio pipeline. If we also look at Celgene, Celgene activity, they bought Juno also back at the start of the year and that's given them a fantastic gene therapy pipeline and CAR-T activity as well. It'll be really interesting to see how that transpires in early 2019 when we anticipate Celgene to be launching their CAR-T therapy. And then the final is the parts of a big company being acquired by a small one. And GSK and Orchard is a classic example here where we go back to April and we saw GSK signing a deal with Orchard to um, divest their gene therapy rare disease portfolio. The reason being is that they realised that they were unable to successfully manage such a a niche and specialised area. So as we look forward to 2019, certainly would anticipate to see more mergers and acquisitions taking place and certainly would anticipate to see uh, more of the smaller companies acquiring parts of or parts of portfolios of big ones. It will be a very interesting year for gene therapy, um, certainly for Cellgene, 
Pfizer probably haven't been as active in mergers and acquisitions as I had anticipated, but certainly in 2019, I see that transitioning. Be a very exciting year. We move on to rare cancers and approvals of new drugs treating these ailments in 2018. Joanna Fernandez provides an update. Looking back to the beginning of 2017, I made the prediction that rare oncology drug approvals would rise and that Celgene's Revlimid would remain one of the top-selling orphan drugs. Celgene's chemotherapy drug did indeed become the top-selling orphan product in the US, with $5.4 billion in sales, accounting for $184,000 in revenue per patient. This meant it is well on its way to reaching the expected $10 billion worth of sales by 2020. Now looking at the rare oncology therapies. In 2018, the European Medicines Agency and the US Food and Drug Administration approved fewer drugs than in 2017. The EMA approved five new rare cancer drugs in 2018, just one less than 2017, while the FDA saw a 33% decrease in approvals. While there has been increasing interest in the rare oncology space, one of the key areas that has hampered further investment, especially in the US, is the relentless focus on high drug prices, which orphan drugs usually attract. We expect these trends to continue for 2019 and 2020. Next, we look at gene therapy and its future from Christina Potion. Thanks, Aparna. So last year, when you asked us for our predictions, I actually just finished an interview with a gene therapy expert who told me how excited he was for all the launches coming up in 2018. And so were we. There was Yes Carter and uh, the Kim Raya launch ahead. We worked with a lot of various gene therapy clients. And um, I actually have to say, at the end of 2018, I am still excited. The gene therapy development and approval series is continuing. A lot of therapy areas will get approvals or will get gene therapies in the next few years. But while my excitement still remains, I think there will be challenges. And uh, that basically the question is, what does that mean for the entire healthcare system? At the end of our presentation at the World Orphan Drug Congress earlier this year, we had a really active discussion about the upcoming gene therapy launches. The payers were arguing that the prices close to a million would break the system. The standard counter-argument was focusing on the lifetime prices for, of, for example, enzyme replacement therapies, which cost about 500000 each year. But in relation to such high prices over a lifetime, supporters of the argument claim that the potentially cost-effective price of 4 million that Novartis put out for its new gene therapy will not break the system. But while looking just at the numbers, that is probably true. The important difference is that the healthcare systems at the moment are designed for chronic treatments that spread the costs over the years, whereas Facing these one million or four million at once can be challenging for some sick funds and healthcare systems. So I think my prediction and at the same time also hope for 2019 and probably 2020 as well is that we focus on a how can we make it work attitude. How can we together with all stakeholders in the healthcare system create a sustainable model that allows for patients to access state-of-the-art treatments, insurers and healthcare systems actually be able to afford them and manufacturers to receive a fair return on their investments and the risks taken. 
Now Nader Murad takes a look at societal burden data and its increasing relevance. Hello, Parna, and thank you very much for having me again on the podcast. My prediction was the uh, increasing prominence of societal burden in HTA assessments and uh, uh, to what extent that is being considered. Uh, now, if we look at a, a, an official level in terms of what HTA bodies have published over the past year or so, um, I don't think anything has been really formalized in terms of considering societal burden when evaluating a drug. But having said that, we recently attended the uh, World Orphan Drug Con uh, Congress in Barcelona. And of course, as one would expect, most of the uh, focus was on the affordability of cell and gene therapies. And uh, one theme that was being discussed time and time again, and I'd say it was a point of conflict between payers and pharmaceutical companies, is how can we sustain uh, paying uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds, euros or dollars for, for these therapies. One of the main dividing issues between payers and pharma companies is the fact that payers are still looking retrospectively. What I mean by that is they're they're still looking at therapies in the context of, of the disease itself and what, what sort of uh, cost offsets it's offering within the disease and what clinical value it's uh, bringing to patients. And of course, that is the most important thing that is expected out of a drug. However, when we look at sustainability, of course, uh, not considering the societal burden, to, to me, sounds a bit naive because uh, ultimately when we're treating patients, we're, we're, we're also allowing their families, we're allowing society to reallocate resources to, to areas which require these resources. And I think at the moment, because cell and gene therapies have been focused on rare diseases, this conversation has not really become mainstream. So it's really being discussed amongst uh, uh, expert circles, and it's still being contained within the uh, stakeholders of, of the healthcare industry. But I think for 2019 and, and maybe for 2020 as well, as we see cell and gene therapies moving into mainstream diseases such as diabetes, such as cardiovascular disease, for example, um, I think the uh, societal burden uh, or, or the impact of a drug on the societal burden of a disease will certainly gain more prominence. And I do suspect that we may not see any formalized processes in 2019 to, to, to take that into account. Um, however, I think uh, the, the, the conversation will, will start to focus more and more on that point. Now on to real world evidence, where we predicted that the emphasis on planning real-world evidence in rare diseases will grow. Now, there's not been a dramatic change in the way in which uh, real-world evidence is used to support market access. However, as noted in the predictions, it's very important to plan how to use real-world evidence to support market access, both at launch and post-launch. Arguably, the most significant event in 2018 was in December with the publication of the framework for FDA's real-world evidence program. Many of the issues identified by the US FDA relate to how to design real-world studies to ensure that the results are valid and these issues are also critical for HDA bodies and payers.
most HDA bodies have and will continue to have a preference for controlled trials as a source of evidence and particularly at the time of launch, such evidence will always carry the highest weight. Where real-world evidence is used as part of an HDA submission is critical to address any questions of bias in either the method or context of the data collection. As noted in the predictions, the most obvious way to use um, RWE, as it's known, with payers is as part of an outcomes-based reimbursement approach. In many cases, it's impractical to provide evidence of long-term outcomes at the time of launch, and outcome-based reimbursement should allow such evidence to be collected post-launch in a way which is fair to both the payer and the manufacturer. Clearly, some countries and some payers are more willing than others uh, to engage in this type of schemes. And a big consideration for payers is the amount of work that can be involved in collecting and analyzing that data. Design of the scheme and the data to be collected needs to take this into account in addition to ensuring that the outcomes measures are appropriate and that the data collection process is unbiased. On to the continuing dialogue on drug pricing in the US. Max Rex is here to tell us more. So what happened this year? The first significant announcement came from the Department of Health and Human Services, who released a blueprint outlining the administration's policy positions on a wide range of healthcare topics, including drug pricing. This included ideas such as introducing international reference pricing and various other reforms to Medicare, Medicaid, and the wider reimbursement system. After this proposal had gone through consultations, HHS and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released a more concrete plan to reform the way drugs are priced through Medicare Part B. While Republicans failed with their Obamacare reform attempts, they are much more likely to succeed with the drug pricing reform. This is because this issue has much more bipartisan support, as was shown by Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Ro Khanna introducing a bill that was very similar to the Trump administration's Medicare Part B proposals. Also in this past year, ISA, the unofficial price watchdog in the US, saw its influence grow. CVS Caremark, one of the largest PBMs in the US, became the first PBM to officially incorporate ICE reviews into its coverage decisions for high-cost drugs. And on top of this, Sanofi and Regeneron agreed to use ICE's price recommendations in their negotiations with payers for their drug Praluant. In 2019, we can expect more of the same and potentially more clarity of the administration's plans if there are not too many other distractions. And that's it for 2018. For more news and analysis, go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast from iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and do share your thoughts in the comments section. The Partners for Access team thanks all listeners for supporting this podcast throughout 2018. See you in the new year.